I'm A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. We have a guest co-host today, Mr. Spiro Ducias, who you might remember from a previous episode where him and Rafael Trujillo were on, the new Doth Material, his own Instagram page, which is fucking insane. Spiro, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Great, man. Thank you very much for doing this. I've wanted to have you co-host this, actually, I told you, since we did the episode with Rafael. Yeah, man. Super down. I discovered your playing parallel to you hitting me up. It was interesting, just so you know. Like, I remember that you responded to some stories I posted of URM podcasts over time. And I get a lot of those messages. Sometimes they're way deep in the queue of messages and I don't get to them. But sometimes I do. I remember clicking on yours and being like, oh, it's a guitar player. And then watching this video where you did this stuff on a nylon string. And I was like, okay, this dude knows what the fuck he's doing. Shit. <laughs> Whenever I come across somebody good or something good online, I go through this calculation where I'm like, is this actually good? Like, am I tricking myself? I think this is actually good. Like, I'm running this question. But at the same time that that happened, Wes Hawk told me that I should check your stuff out because I was actively inquiring for who should I have play some solos on New Doth? And he was like, yeah, check out this kid Spiro. Like literally a day right on, from yeah. when I already checked out your stuff. So I was like, okay, I'm not nuts. Actually, <laughs> it's good. So I dug deeper into your Instagram page and was like, shit, this kid's actually really fucking good. And I know that it's a shared sentiment among people who go to your page, and I'm not trying to turn this into a ass-looking session or anything, but I was really, really impressed. And from that point on, I just wanted to find out more, and thank you for being here. Appreciate it, man. Jeez, yeah. I mean, dude, stoked to be here. So many of the people I've looked up to, I've listened to on this podcast, so like, of course, I was going to accept the invitation and be stoked to do it, you know what I mean? Like, it's awesome just being able to talk to the, the sickest people in the scene and like, you know, pick everyone's brain. It's a blast. That's what I like about it. It's a really, really good excuse to spend an hour or two talking to the highest achievers in, I guess, our little particular neck of the music woods <laughs> without a feeling like a waste of time to talk to them for two hours. For sure. Because like, it's hard for me to block out two hours or something or an hour to just talk to a complete stranger. Yeah. And I know that Everyone who comes on feels the same way. So a podcast is like a really good way where everyone can just be like, cool, we'll, we'll just hang out. I mean, you're, you're getting two hours talking to people like, and everyone's like present. I mean, I think that's another one. Like exactly the assumption before you hop on something like this is that like, you're going to be locked in and like part of the discussion. It's like, yeah, it just gives way to like tons of sick conversations with sick people, you know? Yeah. It's stuff that you wouldn't really be able to do. Otherwise, and speaking of sick people, guest today is Ian Way, who's the guitar player or one of the guitar players for one of the most insane tech death bands in the world, Surreption, and also his other band, Vagon. But I don't know about you, but like when I hear stuff like Surreption or actually Surreption, just like, how is this possible? And I guess also the thing about them is their stuff's so good that I'll actually sit through a song or check For out sure. more songs. Lots of times that style of music 
the tech death stuff, I can't make it past 30 seconds because I'm bored. But their stuff, I will listen and be like, this is great. Also, how the fuck? Well, yeah, I mean, dude, like when you hear a band like that, for me, it takes me going to Instagram and seeing someone like him playing to then be like, oh, I'm actually hearing this on a record. And I know he was just part of their last record, but like he's a wild player. And it's like, I love seeing fucking high octane, modern technical heavy music where someone like that's in the band actually playing it. He's a wild player. And like, you can hear that on their last record for sure. I feel like you can't, even though people think that lots of modern music is faked, you can't really fake good playing. You can approximate it. For sure. But there's a difference. Like you can tell when that fire and that ability is there. For sure. And in his case, it takes one look on his page on all his like sick ass, like camera audio videos to know he's about it. And like, he's got it going on (laughs) for sure. You know what I mean? Real deal for sure. He's sick. Yeah. So without further ado, we present you Ian Way. Ian Way, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Happy to be here. Pleasure. Okay. So something that found out about you that I want to know. You wanted to play bass first and then ended up playing guitar. Usually it's the other way around where someone kind of sucks at guitar and ends up on (laughs) bass. Uh, No offense to bass players, but that's kind of the cliche that we know about. So uh, what do you have to say for yourself? (laughs) How do you explain that? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was uh, was a kid, I I played piano from a young age. And then I had some friends who were interested in heavy metal. And I was, you know, exposed to heavy metal and stuff at a young age to my cousins. And my friend was like, I'm going to play guitar and we need a bass player. So I was like, okay, well, I had no experience with guitar or anything at this point. So I said, screw it. I didn't know the difference in guitar or bass. So I just figured, well, I'll play an instrument. You know, I can like play bass and it'd be fun. I'll be in a band and I won't care. I did that. And I was like, I'm going to do this. And you know, my mom was like, no, you're not. <laughs> it's not going to happen. She was like, you know, if you're going to play she an cared instrument. too much about you. <laughs> yeah. She, she was like, yeah, it's, it's it. Yeah. My, my son is better than that. <laughs> not going to let this happen to my kid. <laughs> Yeah. So she was like, yeah, you're going to play guitar. Then after you could play bass. And I, I just started guitar and I never went back. I do have a bass. And I mean, no, no offense or anything. I like the bass players, like you had said. I mean, I, I bass is very important. Yeah, <laughs> Lots of my best friends are bassists. Hell yeah, man. Bass players, yeah, the best people in the world, man. They lock that shit down. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's something that I, when I started guitar, I kind of just got really into that. And yeah, I guess it, that was what I picked and I, I went with that. So I never ever like went back to bass and I, I suck at playing with like, you know, the three finger, like the Cliff Burton style stuff and, you know, like a double thumbing Victor Wooten type shit. I suck at that stuff, man. You know, those, those guys got that shit locked and it's super impressive. It's like a different animal, man. I mean, I guess that's the one thing about this style of music is that like, if you're a good guitar player, you can sound like a crushing bass player, but like in terms of like, bass player hierarchy. It's like a whole nother animal. It's a different instrument. Yeah. I can tell you from recording metal, I can count on one hand the amount of times that the bass player was actually good enough to make it to the recording. But those times, it was way worth it. It's really different when you have a real bassist as opposed to a guitar player that's just doing it because he has to. It's true. Or she has to. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I feel like, you know, on a guitar, you can play a bass like a guitar. 
you can play with a pick, you can play it the same way you play a guitar, but it just doesn't have the same sound. You know, it doesn't have the exact same kind of feel that a bass player would have if you're going to play with your fingers and have that same kind of like way of, of articulating the beat, you know, and being able to play things a certain way that a bass player would. And there's a certain skill set that I think bass players have in that department that guitarists don't. I do think it depends on the style too. It's definitely valid as like a super modern style to play devil's advocate. If it's performed by the rhythm guitar player, you're going to get like more cohesion, like down an octave than you would if you had a stellar bassist. But there's the kind of like the sound of like a band that is just like undeniable when you just have like a bass player doing his thing. Not to get like into the metallic rabbit hole, but there's like interviews of like James saying that he was like pissed when Jason was just like emulating his guitar riffs on Injustice for All when he was used to like Cliff just kind of like being like a bassist kind of, you know, doing his thing as like an external instrument. That's actually my point about like having recorded a bunch of bands is the times where someone comes in and actually fulfills their role as an actual bassist, then it makes sense to have the bassist record. But if they're just playing the same thing as the rhythm guitar, more often than not, even if the bass player is pretty good or really good, lots of times it's going to be better to just have the rhythm guitar do the bass just because of the cohesion. But when it comes to like actual bass lines and sounding like a bass player, that's where I think it's a totally different instrument. I feel like there's some key differences. For instance, I think, and I want to talk about this with both of you guys, but guitar, you have to really, really, really deal with finesse issues. Play too hard, starts to sound like garbage, don't play hard enough, starts to sound like garbage. If you want to hit certain speed thresholds or go beyond them, finesse is kind of the answer to almost everything. Whereas with bass, you have to destroy that instrument to really start to get to where it sounds awesome. And by playing that hard, you're not going to be able to reach the same levels of finesse. It's more about like power and feel where Guitar does have power and feel. It's like two different approaches. And I noticed that people play guitar the way that those really good bass players play the bass on a non-ever tune especially. It's just going (laughs) to go completely out of tune and just sound like noisy garbage. Like lots of times if you solo out the bass for what's considered really good bass playing, it'll sound super fucking noisy and messy. And then when you hear it all together, it like is the glue. But if you were to hear a guitar that sounded that noisy, <laughs> yeah, you'd make the dude redo it. Yeah, absolutely. You'd have to. I also feel like, I mean, just again, metal, the bass isn't really serving as like often as the primary bass like instrument. It's more just like a timbre relative to the guitars. Like often it's the most prominent aspect of like bass guitar in like a lot of modern metal to me is upper mid range, like clank. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the low end kind of like deliberate mix moves that happen between like Mm -hmm. the bass and the drums versus if you're going to show up at like a funk gig, you're like actually the source of like low frequencies in a specific range. That's like your responsibility where it's like, it's like a different responsibility depending on the genre. I feel like. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, funk, you're the one who makes everybody right. dance. Yeah. But in metal, I mean, I think I think we could probably take you know, a couple of different roles too. You can look back at, say, the first Surreption 
album. Yeah, I mean, I didn't play in the band at that point, so I could talk about this shit all I want and not be tooting my own <laughs> horn. Yeah, I'm just a huge fan of the band, you know. But the thing is, is like that record, I think, has an absolutely killer tone, hugely part of the fact that the bass is so present in the mix and the bass makes up a huge part of the low end of the guitar sound. And it really thickens up everything that's going on in that uh, in that production. And like, you know, if it wasn't for that bass sound, then I think he, uh, the guitar would sound thin and it wouldn't have the same you know impact that it does on the record. Yeah, but having the bass player have a solid timing and solid groove, but also like a really good tone and really good mixing, good presence in the mix yeah. makes a huge difference to how everything else sounds too. And I think that's really, really important in metal mixes. And sometimes that can get confused because if you have something tuned down, obviously the frequencies yeah. are kind of like in the same place for the most part. I mean, like if you're tuned yeah. down to like drop B and you got a bass player with a five string and he's playing B as well, you know, you're playing the same fucking note, you know, pretty much, you yeah. know, so like can't be tricky for things to kind of have their own space. You know, things are kind of overlapping and stuff. That's a good point. That's kind of what I meant. Right? It's like really apparent, like when mixing, but like, I feel like the lower you tune your guitars, it's almost like the bass kind of has to make up like the other way a bit because it's like you know when you're in like drop e or whatever you're not dropping the bass down another octave nor do you want it to like sit in the exact same spot yeah you don't have a bass yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like a bit of a trade-off that happens there yeah well it's like animals as leaders right in that sense i mean yeah. they don't need a bass player because they're no. playing so deep already at this point if they had one it would just get muddy it wouldn't sound yeah good. that like split coil like thump tone he's got going on like when you mix that that's like most deadly like bass tone ever. You yeah, know no I mean? shit. Hey, so there you go. He's he's like a bass player and a guitarist in one. Man, cheers to that. Yeah, for real. <laughs> I feel like with metal mix, it's not just the low end. It's like, for instance, a lot of what we think of as one thing is really a combination of multiple things. Like the high end of a kick in a mix is usually a combination of the high end of the bass along with the high end of the kick. Yeah, and then a little bit of pick attack is yep. what gives it that kind of uh, super cutting but not plastic tone that's got like teeth to it. It's usually a combination of things and the low end with exceptions like animals as leaders. It's not just guitar. It's not just bass. It's not just kick. It's like the actual definition of the word mixing is some sort of mix of all those elements. Yeah. And, and also there are some times where like really good mixes are some of that presence in those areas comes post recording like you know bus processing and stuff like a lot of like super tight like modern death metal stuff to me feels like you have just like a really kind of like contained you know clean mix that doesn't have too much going on down there and then like let's not say like mastering but more like craftier mix moves on the entire mix kind of bringing all of that energy back up on the the master recording like i i hear a lot of that but then Sometimes, again, too, you got to like have something good recorded at the start, too, before you can get like a good final product. There's only so much, you know, post course, right. yeah, production work you can do with editing. Yeah. If, if what, whatever you record at the start is trash, I mean, there's, there's only so much stuff you can do after that to make it sound good. You know? Yeah. Amen. So, I mean, yeah, if you got a good bass player, a guy who's just killing it in the low end there, you know, and he like locks it in and plays some sick shit. I mean, the band is going to sound that much better. Yeah. Right off the hop, just because yeah. it's well recorded and it's a good player, you know? Absolutely. All right. I want to switch gears and talk about guitar and what goes into actually playing the kind of stuff you play. And Despair, I want your insight on this too, because you also play super insane stuff. But one thing that I've noticed is when I watch players who play super insane stuff, lots of them seem super relaxed. But what I've noticed is they're even more relaxed than they seem, it's like impossible to 
reached those speeds without it. And so I'm wondering, how did you learn to play relax? Is this something that you need to work on all the time or is this something that came naturally and like, how do you keep that up? Good question. I mean, I feel like uh, the relaxation, it's a tricky balance to find when you play technical death metal because it's such a aggressive and fast style that, like you said, there's a certain level of tension that you need to really achieve that. And to find the right balance where you have enough, but not too much is very tricky. Partially that, that comes from like, practicing like stamina exercises. You know, like I think being able to practice things for an extended period of time at like a little bit lower BPM, gradually increasing things, you know, in five BPM increments over five minutes and another five minutes, another five, you know, and so you build it up gradually over time and work on your stamina. I think that, that type of thing makes it a little bit easier to maintain a relaxed state while you're playing those types of things. But it's got to be a gradual process. I find if you do like a lot of this like burst type stuff, really extreme fast playing for long periods of time, like you just gradually build more tension over time. Next thing you know, you're all tweaked out. Your neck is tight, your shoulders tight and yeah, you get tired, you know? So like it's uh, a gradual process. So for me, I mean, like I started like playing death metal, like when I was like 14 and like I was doing trend picking and stuff from a young age, I kind of always just, just did that. And back then, I mean, it was more of like this just kind of grit your teeth as hard as you can and yeah, yeah. just do it, you know, and just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the faster, the better, you know, and I never thought about technique or anything at that point. Honestly, I don't even know if my technique was good or if it was bad because I, I don't have that uh, kind of perspective on my playing from what it was back then. I just remember what it felt like and what it sounded like. But over time, like I started giving him more of a shit about that. And obviously he became a better player and stuff too. I mean, like well, I could probably trend pick for a minute straight back then and now I can trend pick for 10, you know? Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's definitely a lot easier to do. And a lot of that is just consistent practice, you know, basically stamina methods, you know, doing slower BPMs. Like if you can play at your max speed is uh, 110, 30 second notes, let's say something like that then yeah, you want to practice stamina a little bit lower around 80, 85, 90 in that case, and you know, gradually increase, but go for longer periods of time on the lower BPMs. And that type of stuff, I think it ingrains the right tension in the right places. Like, I mean, if you have a certain kind of thing where you like are tense when you play and you keep doing that and you do that for like 20 minutes every day and you're always tense, I mean, that becomes the, the second nature. That becomes that's how, you, how play. you play. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that's bottom line, what you do. So whenever you pick up the guitar, you're going to be just like tweaked out and shit. And that's yeah. not good. So like, you know, you want to make sure that it's a gradual process, you know, reaching that next level of speed. So I think working on stamina is really important. And you talk to, to drummers and stuff like that too, guys who do just blast beats. And it's a simple motion, like finger blasting right. and stuff. They would say the same thing, you know, like they had to do these, these blast beats for like, 250 BPM for like, you know, an hour straight, you know, it's just right. 16 notes, you know, and it's insane. And how they do that is just kind of doing stamina practice for, you know, extended periods of time at lower BPMs, but gradually increasing. I, I can actually relate, Spira. I want to hear your take, but let me just say, speaking of stamina exercises, I have a really good perspective on this because I took a break from playing and I never used to do that stuff before the break. And so I had this like speed threshold that I could just never get past. And I was trying to muscle everything out and was doing more burst style stuff and kept on hurting myself. And then after coming back to guitar, all that stuff was like reset to zero. So one of the things that I've been doing since coming back to it is a lot of stamina work at lower BPMs. And now my 
accuracy, my speed, like everything is just way better than it was before I took the break. And I think that the big difference is that I do that stuff. I consider it like cardio almost. If a typical song is four minutes, then I want to be able to do what's required for the song for like 16 minutes, but maybe 20% slower than the song itself. I'm curious about your opinion because you also hit some insane speeds and are just light as a feather. I think, um, and Ian, let me know if you relate to this at all, but like, I definitely think people underestimate muscle memory's role in stamina and endurance. We tend to think faster or longer you need to go or like we, we, we equate more to like more energy often. Like that's just like a very default, like natural kind of human thing whenever it comes to some labor intensive like motion or something. But I do think there's, and you gave it a good example of like, you know, death metal drummers or, you know, people that have to do like really intensive or like what appears as intensive things for long periods of time. It's almost like you can trust your muscle memory to carry you to the finish line if it doesn't feel like it's allocating a lot of energy. But I do think it requires like really deeply ingrained muscle memory for that to happen. Just as like, you could say the word and a hundred times in a row, and, 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 because it's like, we're so used to speaking and it's not like a one-to-one comparison, but there's a lot of like things we do that we could do for like hilariously long amounts of time. And a pick weighs like very insignificant amount of mass here. It's like, we're just moving this a very small distance back and forth. It's not actually that intensive of emotion. I mean, you hear some great players talk about it too, like just like mentally telling yourself that something's going to be easy before you do it yields shocking results for me. There have been techniques that like I've really struggled with on the first day of trying something. I'm like, boy, I don't, I don't see the end of the tunnel with this. And then like, I'll be like, no, it's easy. Just like do it. It's fucking easy. Just, just do it. Just from my own experience, I've like made like significant gains that way of just like telling my nervous system to not be like on high alert or like to not be expending too much energy from somewhere. And then just things kind of naturally just snowball starts rolling. I don't know if you relate to that at all, but. Well, I think there's like definitely confidence plays an important role in, yeah, the ability to play something on the instrument, you know, that's really important. So like having that confidence in your abilities and what you're going to do and, you know, what you want to do, you know, and where you want to get, I think it's really important. Yeah. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in a sense. Yeah. It's kind of like, I'm going to do this and there's nothing that's going to stop me. Or about being relaxed. Like I'm going to play this in the most calm, like lowest energy output state as possible. If you're just using your ear and making sure that it sounds how you want it to sound and you just kind of balance those two things, like you can definitely get to those like, you know, consistent longer intervals of time, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and your style too, like your style is a little bit different than mine. Like I've done quite a bit of economy picking and stuff, but like I'm not to the extent that you've got it locked in, man. Yours is dialed. Yeah, it's insane. Thank you, dude. I still do it once in a while, but there's specific points in time where I feel like it's more uh, applicable to what I do. Yeah. But for most of the stuff, it's heavy alternate. And I find for like that style, just intrinsically, yeah, you need to have a little more kind of, uh, you know, force behind what you're doing yeah. because you can't use the momentum from the previous stroke to go into the next stroke. One thing I think doesn't get talked enough about is like guys that do a lot of alternate picking or kind of covering wider string sets. Like you do this thing that's really good where like, you know, there's the wrist motion and the thumb motion, but like relative to those two things, what determines where your wrist is, is where your forearm is. So there are these kind of like points where like, 
you're always optimizing the leverage that you have here, depending on where you need to pick. I don't know if that's an intuitive thing for you, if that's something you've worked on, but like that is 100% something that's like allowing longer periods of time playing the guitar without hurting yourself or getting tired or whatever. Like, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I mean, whenever you do that, whenever you move with the elbow and the shoulder, I mean, the, the wrist is going to like have to make less motion. Right. I think, you know, Michelangelo Badio actually talks about this quite a bit, how like when he picks, his pick is like a stylus on a record player. Yeah. And it's just moving from one ring to the next ring. And then like the pick is moving in its own little plane there, but then the hand moves to the next ring and then boom. Exactly. The pick is only moving the same amount, you know, but if you got to make more motion with your wrist, then you got to make more motion overall, which takes more energy. I think of it, there's like these three like, spots, depending on where your wrist is, like you're always in a position to have like optimal leverage and you're just kind of like working those, those things in tandem, you know? Right. Yeah. No, gotcha. Like there's some guys who do the elbow thing. Like, I mean, Rusty Cooley, Rusty is just off the charts, man. (laughs) And it's, it's insane how how fast that guy can play, you know? And I feel like the picking, like the pure speed that he has is partially due to the fact that he does use his elbow. Because I think with that, you know, extra muscle behind it, like you can just move faster and uh, I think that is something like when you're playing on, say, a single string without having any extra string changes, that makes it uh, you know, easier to play fast. Inevitably, right, if you're on a single string, like the range of motion that all this is moving is a lot smaller. I think it gets dicey when you see like guys covering like wider ranges of motion at high speeds, moving like all of this mass, you know, and your yeah. joints are not made to support all that. No, no. Like I've, I've got like a, a few students, actually, like one guy, he's um, a guitarist. Are you guys familiar with the band Striker? Oh, yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. I'm not, so like, no. yeah, I mean, it's like one of the bigger bands that come out of Edmonton, like the uh, heavy metal bands. It's a, a buddy of mine. He was had a band before here in Edmonton, and then he just recently joined that band. He'd been a student of mine for a few years, and he uh, had issues with tennis all, but he's written sports and stuff. You know, he's, he's always been like um, an active dude, I guess, and he's kind of put a lot of uh, stress on his body. And, uh, you know, a hell of a lot more than I have, you know, I said, sit in my ass and play video games too much. But like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, you know, he's a great guitarist, you know, and he's... Um, like Marty Friedman, really great phrasing, you know, like cool note choice and, and things like that. But he got tennis elbow from picking and I watched him play. And the first thing I noticed him doing was picking from his elbow for everything. Yeah. Yeah, he would do pentatonic, tune up a string from the elbow. It was insane. And the amount of tension he was putting on his body was absurd. The elbow is just n- not meant to take that, you know, when you're doing that for every possible thing. Right. Yeah, but I think like when you kind of use that in certain places, it can be very useful. I think of a guy like Steve Morse. I mean, Steve Morse, he does like a lot of cross picking alternate stuff, mm-hmm. which is more from his wrist. And then when he goes into hyperspeed, starts doing triple sixteenths, like all of a sudden he engages the elbow. Exactly. And like he's just ripping, man. If you want that extra gear, yeah, sometimes yeah. the elbow is good. You know, I find myself, you know, like when we're playing surruption stuff, hitting like 16th notes at 240 kind of thing, like the elbow's starting to creep in there a little tiny bit, you know, but yeah. it's only for, yeah, just a, like a little bit of time, you know. Mostly I always try to use the wrist to kind of generate the motion. For sure. And the thumb kind of comes in a little bit here and there and the elbow kind of comes in a little bit here and there, but the wrist is always kind of where it starts. Yeah, I think it's good just to kind of like spread the load, you know. To me, like it feels like if you're just going to go for longer periods of time, it's almost like a computer. The more like memory you have on your computer, like the more you're spreading that so that doesn't get overworked. One thing I'm curious about, speaking of the mental aspect of relaxing enough and properly visualizing how to spread the load, a for instance is recently when filming playthrough videos for the new Doth songs, the playthrough videos that we do for Riff Hard, like they're actually played, so not mimed. So, you know, got to play the song start to finish. And I noticed, and this happens every time, 
the first four or five takes, I'm jacked up like mentally, like I've got the nerves. And so I'm playing harder, therefore sloppier. And something happens about the fourth time where like I just calm down and yeah. like I tell myself, all right, we're going to just play this time through as light as possible. And it's okay. Just chill. Just try to play it lightly. And when I do that, suddenly it's not just the tension that leaves, but all this brain ram gets freed up and I can visualize where I'm getting tense. It's like my ear locks into, you know, if I tense a little more, like it starts to sound different. It all just starts to work together and it just gets a lot better. And suddenly it sounds way better and I'm playing better and can just keep doing it over and over and over again. Whereas if I kept playing it the way I started, I'd be cashed out pretty soon. Yeah. I feel like there's definitely this thing that happens where your brain will do some wild stuff, especially like if you're, if you're recording something or if you're really just trying to like focus in on performing something. I think the more you do it, like in some short amount of time, your vision will get more and more refined. One, you'll recognize a lot more details, but two, yeah, kind of realize what you don't need to be doing. I don't know if you guys relate to this. For me, there's like an optimal kind of window of time to where it's like, I'll start here. I can see it kind of like peaking. And then there's this peak that I need to hit. And I, it lasts for like, it depends. But like, if I'm recording something over the course of an hour, trying to get it like down, like super tight, there's usually this like peak of like eight to 15 minutes yep. that like, I have to capitalize on where it's like, my brain is aware of all the mechanical nuance and my body, I don't know if it's relaxed enough or that it has, there's also the kind of like, you know, warming up, literally getting blood flowing to certain muscle groups of your body. That's like an important one. Like I think athletes need to like literally like get their heart pumping to make sure that the muscle groups they need to use are like alive. So I think something like that kind of happens when you do those first four or five or whatever it takes to where your body's like, all right, ready to go. But yeah, I don't know. For me, there's definitely like a peak that I need to take advantage of. I don't know if you guys relate to that at all. Yes, 100%. And for me, how long that peak lasts depends on how early in the day yes. I start. 100%. So if I like sit down to play like first thing when I wake up within 30 minutes, I will start to enter that peak and I can sustain it for hours actually if I start early. But then I always notice when it starts to fade. However, I have like taught myself how to get it back several times throughout the day. Yep. But every single time I get it back, it's just a little shittier and <laughs> a little shorter lived. So if I'm like recording, I try to like just be super aware of that, that I only have so many times that I can get myself there yep. in a day. And when I get there, the engineer I'm working with knows like, we're not going to be doing any editing now. We're not diverting like this is pure tracking you're gonna get me at my best now maybe in an hour it's gonna start to fade but like capitalize what about you in do you are you like that to an extent uh maybe a little bit different but to an extent i feel like um like i can i can always activate that realm you know i can kind of kick into that gear but i think depending on the time of the day sometimes it can be like a little bit longer to get into that point if i do it yeah. like in the morning you know, I'm pretty much like instantaneously. I can warm up in 10 minutes and boom, there I am. 
But if it's later in the day, like if you got to play a show or something, I mean, you're not playing a show at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know, that's uh, right. Yeah, you, you, know, you play at 10 at night. And when you play, I mean, it takes a little more time to warm up. So, like, I find, like, you know, when I'm getting ready for a show and stuff like that, I got to warm up for like 30, 45 minutes. And then I hit that peak and I feel like I'm picking so hard, I can break a string and shit. Right. And I feel like, man, this is okay. Now I'm, I'm ready to rip. Yeah, I'm ready, I'm ready to do this, you know, but it takes a little more time to kind of get into that kind of state. I think later in the day, but it's it's something that I can achieve at any point in the day. It just requires a little more um, warm up, a little more preparation. Do you have specific things you do? It's always like a simple idea that starts with both hands, but it always changes the simple idea. I'm like, I'm today I'm gonna do a little bit of this. We'll do some fives. All right, let's do some Paul Gilbert stuff. All right, let's do some sevens. Okay, and I kind of just change it up each day. And uh, I've done a lot of practice with uh, with fragments and, and sequencing and things like that. So like I just kind of pick a, a random sequence and fragment it and, and practice that. And that seems to get the hands synchronized and get things working together. From that point, when I get the alternate picking down and everything kind of synchronized, yeah, the left hand seems to kind of yeah, be able to keep up. And then it's pretty much go time. Yeah, when yeah. it comes to the reps and stuff, I mean, the riffs are pretty much all right hand uh, for surruption. So like I mean, the alternate picking kind of make sure everything is is really tightened up in that realm uh, whenever you kind of warm up with like a small fragment. But if ever you uh, you do like uh, I don't know, crazy Tom Quayle stuff or yeah, like some left hand crazy legato shit, which I mean, I, I enjoy, don't get me wrong. And like Guthrie, I mean, like just a, an absolute phenomenal legato player sitting there with a cup of coffee playing like legato chromatics <laughs> yeah, while talking to people at the same Insane. time, you know, <laughs> like... Dude is just yeah, absolutely insane. Yeah, to do something like that, I mean, obviously I would require a lot more practice, but I mean, like uh, for what I do with Legato, just kind of, yeah, warming up with like the alternate picking kind of gets everything working together, Yeah, you know, which uh, I can pretty much achieve at any point in the day. Yeah. It just takes longer periods of time later in the day. Yeah. Or more coffee. I, I <laughs> Yeah, well, for real. I mean, I probably should have clarified. Yeah, for me, it's like, the right hand's usually like always there, but I find that my left hand, if I take any like considerable time off guitar, that's usually the thing that takes me like a longer time to get the authority feeling like I have it here. Um, it's actually the opposite for me. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Legato, I find is like riding a bike, man. It's like, I can do that just like, boom, just like that. Yeah. But I find picking something worth so intensive, I think for me, where it's all alternate, it requires a lot of like endurance and stuff. So like, I feel like right. it's something I lose the edge very quickly. I've been asking a lot of my guitar player buddies about this, but like I've been doing this thing where I started realizing like in the left forearm, like, you know, these tendons are, you know, they get like really like tied up. This is like where like the biology thing kind of comes into it. Like different people are going to have just completely different like starting points for this, but uh, really mess with like trying to bend each finger just from the middle knuckle without bending the other fingers. Okay. Like not on a guitar, just holding your hand. No, no, just, okay. yeah, just to see like how that feels. Cause like- That's hard. Very hard. So like usually the, the pinky and ring are kind of tied together, right? Yeah, my pinky. Uh, and I've tried to kind of get it to where I just have all that independence going. On a good day, I find that if I'm playing well, all this feels like it's like an open highway. Like I feel like I have a lot of really good control and authority there. But like, you know, if I eat fucking, you know, a cheese quesadilla and I'm like, I haven't played in a few days and I have like a lot of inflammation, it feels like there's like all this glue in here that I have to like break it open, if that makes any sense. But Okay. Yeah, to a certain degree. I think that that does make sense, like in terms of how I would think about it, you know. I do find like the left hand is, is pretty natural at this point. So I don't feel like that's a like a hurdle, hurdle for me. Like when you when you approach that, do you like have any specific things that you use to kind of knock the dust off per se? Yeah, I you know, those Tom Quayle videos actually helped me a lot. Like a couple of years ago, I really opened up to the idea that fretting notes, like often when when notes aren't coming out as clear or articulate, but we tend to resort to thinking that there is a like power issue or like a, you know, how hard you're fretting the note, but like 
it's very easily provable that that's often never the case. He does this example where it's like, if you were to take a note and fret a note and then release pressure until the note stops ringing, and then find the point just where you have to apply the lightest amount of pressure to where the note rings out. In theory, if your timing is perfect, that's as hard as you ever need to fret, ever. And it's like, shit. So I started kind of doing the hammers only thing to where you're only ever fretting one finger on the fretboard at any given time. Like just more as like an exercise thing, obviously. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. that helped me a lot. I realized that my issue was much more like a timing issue than like a power issue, if that makes any sense. But also, yeah, kind of getting the independence of those fingers too. Interesting. Like I feel like that's... Uh... That's like the one reason why I didn't pursue music in school. <laughs> it was like that exercise. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. going to do classical guitar in school. Then I auditioned, got in, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, no, this is bullshit. Yeah. I don't want to do this. <laughs> and like, I had a teacher who was like, we got to teach you how to play guitar again, was, was essentially what he was saying. He's like, you play well, you do this and that, and it's all good, but we got to change some fundamental things. So like, that was the exercise he gave me. He's like, okay, we're going to take like a, a cage system G major scale. Yeah, which I hated for one. I want to play three note per string. And yeah, you know, he was like, We're gonna yeah. do caged. You're like, all right, yeah, right. And you know, fucking Paul Gilbert, man. Yeah, come on. Let's get some dick going here. But you know, he was like, No, right. yeah, we're gonna do the cage system and we're gonna like, you know, fret this stuff and like we're gonna make it buzz. And I was like, Okay, what do you mean by that? And he was like, Well, we're gonna like apply as little pressure as possible because you got too much tension in your left hand. Nice. And like I hated it at that point, you know, and it could have been like uh, the tact of the teacher and stuff as well. But it was also yeah. just the fact that it was a very humbling experience. And uh, that was something that uh, definitely was a, a kick in the nuts, you know? And I, I definitely yeah. found that it was very tricky. But in years after that, you know, like I, I embraced that and I, I started to work more on the left hand. I give it to a lot of students, you know, for, for practicing that type of stuff. Just because when students first play, they have so much tension in their hand. You know, guys guys who can handle it, you know? And like, not not just like some guys like, oh, I'm gonna yeah, like, yeah. teach me wagon wheel, you know? All right, well, first we gotta do the cage system, G <laughs> yeah, major yeah. scale, and we gotta get you buzzing, man. You know, like it's, yeah, it was guys guys who can come in and like, you know. <laughs> kind of get you buzzing. <laughs> Yeah, that's good, how, how to not have any students 101, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah. actually really important. We can talk about that for a second. The boredom factor. This comes up a lot, actually, with riff hard students is they will talk about getting bored while running these exercises or having to learn theoretical concepts or Anything that makes it feel like school, a lot of them, unless they're academically minded, which some are, some I'm sure are. sure as fuck not academically minded. I'm not either. I was a terrible student, <laughs> so I completely relate. I'm probably better about that stuff because I'm older now and so a little calmer, but I feel like that's a constant moving target, I guess, presenting stuff in a way that's engaging enough to get people to actually do it and stick with it long enough to get results. And I think actually by altering your warm-up every day, for instance, that's a way to get around that boredom. And I'm just assuming here, because it's the first time we ever talked, but like when I do stuff like that, that's my way of getting around knowing that I'm going to be checked out if I do it one more time like this. I'm just not going to be mentally in it enough to like engage those parts of my brain that get the control going. So there's this stamina level to it. There's this finesse level to it. But then there's this confidence level. But then there's this also this conquering ADD level for me where I need to make sure that I'm giving myself something to do that I can lock in on mentally or I'm phoning it in and I just don't get the results I need. I'm wondering how do you 
How do you feel about that? Like when you're dealing with students or yourself? Students is more important. Yeah, like I think like you had said, you're older now and you can be more focused. Your approach to things like that is a little more refined. So for myself over time, I've been playing guitar for almost 20 years. Yeah, things have improved gradually. My focus has gotten better. But for students, it's very important. Yeah, when a student comes into my room, yeah, the first thing I, I, I think about when I look at them is like, what motivates this person? What makes this person want to do what they want to do? Is it uh, yeah, having fun? Do they, they want to be extremely good at the guitar? Do they want to derive a certain level of significance from the instrument? Do they want to be able to try different things to basically just stimulate different areas of the life? Do they want to just play, you know, like solid rock hard rhythm for a cover band or something? But yeah, you, you have to like uh, look at someone and, and really establish what kind of uh, motivates them in that sense. And I find for a lot of beginners, it's variety, stimulation from different things, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Because like you said, the boredom factor is an issue. They just don't do it long enough to get the results that they need to get. And you know, if they do that, they will get the results. You know that that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem with that is that they don't know that and they don't care about that. Dude, it's the difference between, in lots of cases, between getting good or sucking or like getting to a level where you're good enough to enjoy it to like be able to keep going. It's really, really, really crucial, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, this is like a an important one. Around the practicing thing, this is just something I've like had to like really learn about myself for the past few years. And you mentioned like kind of like the ADD thing, but like I'm unable to be patient about things that I don't care about, but things that I yep. do care about, I'm suddenly like, I have endless patience. I, I like wrote this... Uh, yesterday, but like, I don't find that I'm able to practice things deliberately with exercises to the point of like five minutes, I'm going to do this at this speed in this interval of time. It's more like once I'm aware of a technique that I find valuable or that if I'm aware of a bad habit that I don't want to do anymore from that point on, I never go back, but I'm just passively playing the guitar. Like if it's some two way slant technique thing, I'll be watching a podcast just kind of quietly like doing this kind of thing. And it's just from that point on, it's always ingrained into when I pick up a guitar. Because I feel like when you feel like, oh shit, now I have to do this thing for this amount of time. It's like, yeah, it's going to feel like homework. You know what I mean? But when it's just like, there's an end goal you want to reach and you're motivated enough to get there and you know what it actually takes to get there in case of just like adopting a particular habit or skill or technique or whatever. It's like, just let it run in the background. And in time, it's just going to become a natural thing that you do. I find that so much more effective than like feeling like there's like a gun to my head. Like I have to do this thing or else I'm not going to get where I want to go. And it's like, often whenever I've tried to do that, I just give up after two days and then I yeah. go on to the next thing. I feel the same way. I mean, it's like, if you, if you have that pressure, like it, it takes the fun out of it. Yeah. It zaps everything that is meaningful to you out of what you're, what you're doing. 100%. And like, I think when you do that kind of thing, I mean, I, I think it's, it's important for beginners to approach it in a certain way. Like, you know, for a lot of my students, I do like practice schedule building and things like this. Like, you know, where we yeah, basically tell them this is what you're going to do for this amount of time. And I always put 10 to 15, you know, I always do yeah, an approximation of time because I never want to be too precise because people feel that pressure, you know, they just say, fuck it, you know, whatever. But if they have right. like a little more of approximation and kind of like a ballpark of what they're supposed to do, it makes it easier. The important thing, though, is them learning how to build those things themselves. So when they get to like a level like yours, you know, they know exactly how to approach these things and they practice. And when they're playing, they can kind of do that autonomously, just kind of practicing. And they know what the end goal is and they can kind of keep going and get better at certain things with a certain method without having to worry about how much exact time they're spending on something. They're more like results oriented. They know exactly what they want to get. They know how to get there. 
And I think the, yeah. the point of a practice schedule and having that kind of five to 10 minutes or 10 to 15 minutes that you do where everything is kind of scheduled out so they can eventually adopt that method and get to that point where they can do it like you do, where it's autonomous. Yeah, it, it feels kind of like if you were going to like learn a language, often people will like have great success learning languages if they just immerse themselves in the culture of the language that they want to learn. The more your brain is just intaking it, the more you're just actually indulging in that thing, regardless of how like deliberate it feels. Like the more it happens, the more it's just going to naturally work its way into in how you do things. But yeah, it's a good point. If there's not a lot of that experience of like having done that and seen the results, what's what's the reason to think that it would work? That's a good point. I mean, I feel like for myself at this point, I, I'm very similar to your approach in that sense. Like I, I think of Alan Holdsworth. When you practice something, you practice something for like a really long period of time. His practice schedule is like two things. <laughs> fucking yeah. like, uh, I don't know, single string uh, triad arpeggios and fucking major sevens, let's say. Yeah, I'm yeah. just ballparking. And, you know, like yeah. he'll, uh, he'll practice those for like, four hours. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, but when you do that, you, you see more results. And I think like uh, for a person who can focus for that extended period of time, there's a more rewarding kind of factor that comes with that. When you get to the end of your practice, you're like, yes, I did something. Yeah. You know, I got something out of that. Whereas if you do 10 minutes, I mean, you might do 10 minutes every day for six months. And at the end of six months, yeah, finally I got the G chord. I could play the G chord, you know, right. It feels like a journey to get to that point, you know, but for a person who's more focused and, and who knows the process is you know, very familiar with exactly what you need to do to get to a certain point. You kind of have to embrace that. You know, you have to embrace that Alan Holdsworth method where you have to do less stuff for longer periods of time. Yes. hundred percent. I will say that I agree, but you have to also balance that against people's personal situations. For instance, I don't have the ability time-wise because of the companies and everything. Like, it's not very often that I have like four hours in the morning and four hours at night to like spend on guitar. And so if I'm not able to do that, what can I do that will keep me either maintaining or improving and what I've noticed is that those five minutes of this, five minutes of that, focused on the exact right things, though, is the difference between me like getting worse or getting better in periods where I have no free time and I like literally have like 12 hour work days and there's no room for a guitar in that. So, how do I work it in to where nothing is suffering? And I've noticed that I was able to bring my guitar playing back from zero while running the companies by doing that like four days a week and then having like two days where I like spend a hell of a lot more time on it like morning to night. But on the days where I can't do that, even if it's like 30 minutes of like five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, as long as I'm tracking my results and I know where I was yesterday and like can see the progress, almost like a fitness tracker kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to work for everyone, but that's one way that it worked for me to actually be able to do this. Because I think a lot of people, they'll hear these stories about virtuosos that play like, or used to play 12 hours a day for like five years straight, that kind of stuff. And they'll think, I can't do that. I shouldn't even try. Like that'll never happen. And I think that's self-defeating thinking. You got to figure out, how you're going to make it work given your actual reality, your your life. And if you strategize it properly and approach it properly, maybe you're not going to be able to get like Guthrie or something if you don't put in 
the 12 hours a day for like a decade, but you can get pretty far. Oh, yeah. And, and this is the big part of it, right? If your goal is to approximate something like Guthrie Govan, assuming that you have a good head on your shoulders, you're going to know that like your life has to revolve around yes. that. You know what I mean? Like that represents <laughs> like the highest human achievement on the instrument. You yes, know what I mean? Agreed. So it's like, that's a, that's a good point to have those realistic gauges of what your it's goal like, is. It's like, what do you want? So I know what I want. I want yeah. to be able to play Doth songs really well. I want to yep. be able to have some authority on the guitar to where I'm good enough to talk about it show people how to do it, talk to virtuosos, play with virtuosos, and like be able to play my own music. I want to be able to, I guess, working within the stuff that I do, but I'm not interested in being like the world's best guitar player. And if I was, I would have to quit the companies right. and make it a singular focus, which right. I think at the end of the day, people need to understand exactly what they want out of it and be comfortable with that. If you want to be the world's best guitar player, then your whole life needs to be structured towards that. You gotta be honest with yourself. If that's not what you want, that's okay too. Absolutely. I mean, just right. figure out what it is you do want. I, I have a question yeah. for Ian about this, because I think this is a big one for me. Like, how often do you feel like you play the guitar passively without the main objective in that experience being that you're playing the guitar? Because, like, this is a big one. Like, people will ask, like, you know, I mean, Ayla, in your case, like you work like an animal and you have all this shit going on, but how often throughout your day are you doing something that doesn't actually require your hands on a on something else? Because like often, like a lot of my guitar playing is not like very like conscious. It's in my hand, unplugged, and I'm watching something or thinking about something I need to do. And it's just like autopilot motions. It's more like a sensory therapeutic thing that I like to do rather than guitar time, focus on the guitar. Like a lot of my guitar playing is not focused. I don't know if that's something like, I'm just one, I like to ask people that like. Interesting. I think I have a balance between the amount of practice and play that you do. And I mean, when you think of a guy like Guthrie, obviously he's done a lot of practice, but he also has this point where he sits on a couch and just watches the Simpsons and he's just noodling yeah. and figuring out the theme to the song on the, exactly, on the TV yeah. show and stuff. And that's why he kind of has this repertoire of all these different uh, you know songs from TV shows and stuff. It's very interesting. I mean, he's got that kind of thing that he's built. There has to be a certain level of grinding factor as well. You had to sit there and grinding this and grinding that and practice. Like my personal approach is more or less like I get up in the morning and I practice pretty much till noon. And then when I practice till noon, then after that, it's, it's lesson time. Boom. Right. When I do that, sometimes it's, some days it's more focused than, than other days. You know, if I feel like there's something that's bothering me that I'm like, I need to get this down. Yeah. Then I might spend, you know, two weeks where I'm heavily into that grinding it and getting it. Like it could be a picking pattern or a tapping right. sequence on an arpeggio or whatever it is. And I put the time into it that I need to do to get it to a point where I'm happy with it. But sometimes it's, it's a little more kind of like, you know, noodling around and stuff too. And I think that's very important to strike a balance between those things. Cause if you don't, you lose kind of the play factor, which is where the fun is derived from. And I don't mean to suggest like not having any objective, but I mean like when you've decided the techniques or the things on the instrument that you value, that you know will get you where you want to go. If those are running in the background, when I say like noodling, yeah, I more so mean just like passively noodling while doing the things you know you should be doing, but like keeping it low stakes, not stressing too much about it. Just kind of as if you were like sitting there, it's just that you're sitting there with a guitar in your hand. Hell like, yeah. Kind of do your thing. Whatever. I feel you. I mean, I, I think like, you know, holding a guitar for me at this point is, is almost like um, it's a relaxation method. You know, like I can have a guitar in go. my hands yeah. and I'm like, ah, this feels nice. That's what I mean. Yeah. And sometimes when I don't have a guitar in my hand, I'm like, man, 
something's missing. Like, what, what am I, what am I supposed yeah. to do with these things? Like, because when you, you know, hear Guthrie then, talk, he he would talk about like, yeah. like his upbringing. Like, he'll say like, you know, I didn't like practice as much as I just like always had a guitar in my hand, and that's just been like kind of a school of thought that it's been helping me. And I just think. I like to ask sick players like you if, if anyone, you know, relates to that. Appreciate it, man. I think, yes, 100%. I mean, but I think like I've probably done like a, a lot of just focused practice as well. You know, like there's my guitar time. And when I put the guitar time, I finish and I'm like, yeah, I'm sweating. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, I put the guitar <laughs> down for a little bit, man. <laughs> Where I'm at peak always is immediately following an EP or an album recording session. And I think it's for those reasons, because when you're recording... You're playing all day, but it's a combination. Like there's some practice for the shit that you're going to have to record, like working on it and like drilling the shit out of it and then just playing it yep. a lot. Like when you're actually recording, figuring stuff out that might not be totally there, like thinking of different ways to do it. And so you're going back and forth between intense grinding and playing and making stuff sound cool, all these things. And after the two weeks or the three weeks of recording, that's always, and I guess the same goes for making riff hard videos or whatever, but like that is when I'm absolutely always at my peak. And I think it's because of a similar sort of thing. It's like always running, regardless of if it's like grind or play, it's like always going on and it's yeah. the main focus of everything. I think for, for sure. you too, I mean, like you took your playing and you took a break and you came back to it. So like you said, you don't have as much time to sit down and have a guitar in your hands. If you're doing something, you know, for Riff Hard or for URM, I mean, you had to make sure that you're 100% focused in what you're doing. Otherwise, you're not going to get the best results out of what you want to achieve. So like, I mean, you had to be focused on the task at hand in that sense. So when you have your guitar, it's very important for you to be focused on the things you have like to get done. I mean, so having a practice schedule for what you do, I think is extremely important because like it'll help you get the most out of the instrument and you know, get better faster and then see results in a quicker time. Like you were mentioning, like you track your progress and stuff like that. So you track mm -hmm. like, okay, like this week I'm doing like uh, 100 BPM, then like the next week, 105, next week, 110. Sometimes it goes down too. Sometimes it goes from 110, 105, you know, and then, I mean, progress is never always like this, you know, it's yeah. up, then down a little bit, then up, then down a little bit. Sometimes it goes even yep. more, you know, it goes down because, you know, you just don't get time or whatever. Right. Stuff like that happens, but you live a very busy life. So, I mean, like having all these different things going on and then having the guitar as well and, and wanting to kill it on the guitar. I mean, you got to be very structured in your approach and you don't have the time to kind of sit down and just watch TV and just relax playing guitar and noodling around. You know, you, you got to make sure that you got your, your head in the right place while you're doing it and you're peaking at the right time and you're practicing all this stuff. So you get the most out of your peak when you do that. I'm lost without it. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's yeah, like, basically. The thing is you, you have to do it that way. Otherwise it's like, you're not going to get the results that you need, you know? So I think that's uh, extremely important. Dude, I have it down to a color coding system, basically. Holy fuck. I'll, uh, look, I'm going to screen share this with you guys real That's quick. Insane. It's ridiculous. But by doing this, it's basically what has enabled everything. So tell me if you can see this. I have to hire you. Oh, damn. Yeah, you went XL, okay, man. So as you can see, this is, Jesus I Christ. started this exact version back in November. And I have several tabs depending on what I'm working on. Wow. You can see at the bottom here, whether I'm working on a song or recording prep or whatever the fuck it is I'm working on, I'm tracking it. And this green right here means that I was working on one of these other tabs so I don't start to feel like a loser. <laughs> but this color coding right here, see like if it's orange, keep it the same BPM. If it's wow. yellow, it means... 
I started okay, but like I need to bring the top of the range down. Green means fucking raise it. Blue is uh, almost like a deload week from like lifting weights. And uh, crazy man. Red means you're fucking up. So <laughs> That's I'm just amazing, not going to remember man. this shit. Some people have made fun of me for it, but like <laughs> if I don't if I don't do it like this, I'm just not going to do it. Put it this way: if you're capable of making that Google document then you are capable of the gains you're after on the guitar. That's how I see it. I, and I'm not joking. If you have like the mental focus to put that sheet together, you can achieve any of the things that you want to get going on the guitar for what that's about. Well, that's that's a skill in itself. I mean, being able to yeah. orchestrate that and to be able to put all those mm -hmm. things together, that's a skill in itself 100%. being able to achieve that. Like it's something that I think a lot of guitarists lack because they always kind of get into guitar for a different reason. Yeah, but obviously when y'all, when you do this, you know, you're like, this is the goal I need to get there. And that tracking method that you have is such a precise way of doing it that and a lot of guys just don't have the skills to do. And, you know, that's super impressive that, you know, you've taken it to that extreme. Well, thanks. Super cool. For me, it comes down to like the whole knowing yourself thing. I know that if I don't do this, it, there's no middle ground because I'm kind of an extremist. So if I don't do this, it ends up being that, oh, I just spent 10 minutes on it today and then five days went by and I didn't play or something right. because I just won't even think about it. So stuff like this is what keeps me going. And I think that the ultimate moral of the story is that everyone kind of needs to figure out what it is for themselves that's going to keep them coming back to it. Kind of like we were talking about with beginners, like why are they playing? I've known quite a few people, you know, the previous lead guitar player in the band, Emil. I remember being around him a lot between the ages like 18 and 25. And he also didn't, I mean, he practiced a lot, but he didn't practice as much as people would think. More, he just was always holding a guitar like always, if we were like at a party, if we were socializing, if we were just hanging out after rehearsal, like anything, dude was just always holding a guitar, like as a default mode. Yeah, because it's like switched on all the time versus yes. like thinking of it as like guitar, not guitar. He's just always on. Yes, you know? always guitar. Yeah. 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 And I feel that. I mean, like I, I always kind of have a guitar in my hands because I mean, it's my job. So I'm always like teaching. So I had to have a guitar in my hands. But I mean, like I'm, I'm never yeah. like always, like, I'm going to practice this and practice that, you know, but it's, it's more of an extension of what I am, I guess, my hands in that sense. And I feel like that, that's important. I mean, Emil's such a crazy player. I mean, Emil is like just next level. I actually have, uh, I brought this out to show you, but uh, this right here, this, this record. Oh, yeah. I, I got that when I was 14, man, 14, 15. I can't remember exactly, but I, I got it through Roadrunner Records. I went on, uh, on online and yeah, it was searching on YouTube and yeah, the internet and stuff. And yeah, I was like looking for um, new music and stuff and went on the website and you guys had this street team. Yeah, this Roadrunner street that's team. That's right. And I signed up for the street team. And uh, yeah, I was like, I was that's super cool, man. Like I, I was living in Newfoundland, you know, like it wasn't a whole lot of metal around and stuff like that. So like, I, I thought this would be like a really fun thing to be part of. I signed up for it. And then yeah, a few weeks later, I got this in the in the mail. I actually hadn't heard of you guys at that point. I didn't know the band Death. And I just knew that you were signed to a big label. And I was like, well, they must be doing some serious stuff. So listen to the record blew my fucking head off, man. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, listen, I, I wore that thing out, man. I listened to it over and over again. Yeah, the riffs, the production, the solos from Emil, man, it was it was next level. Yeah, that was my first introduction to that stuff. I, I wanted to keep that there just to, to show you because I've actually well, had this for, for years, man, because uh, did, did I've been a fan for a long back time. back in the day? Well, that's really awesome to hear. And the Roadrunner Street Team was one of the cool things. Roadrunner 
were always like, they always understood what you had to do in the time period to get a band out. But I remember when we tour back then, like there would always be a contingent of Roadrunner street team people that would come out. So did we ever meet you? Like, I, I don't think so. Ever? I wish, man. It would no, have been great. We played Edmonton. I actually grew up in Newfoundland. So like I grew up like oh, okay. uh, on a little tiny island, like so uh, on the East far. Coast. I was like in the middle of nowhere. I think the only uh, like band that uh, kind of came to Newfoundland was uh, Black Label Society when I was like 20, 21. And I remember seeing Zach, you know, being in the pit, him doing like his 10 minute guitar solo and stuff and blew my mind. We never got much through because it was, uh, it, you had to take a ferry to get there. It's very expensive yeah. to tour in Canada in general. And the Newfoundland just kind of triples, quadruples that, you know, it makes it even more expensive. You get people flying in like Elton John, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, stuff like that. But I mean, you don't get more niche acts. I would have to go through Edmonton and live, you know, in a different place. I, I didn't move to Edmonton until about eight years ago, eight, nine years ago. If I was living here back then, 100%, man, I would have been at the shows. I would have met you, would have said hello. Yeah, and it would have been super cool. But yeah, I didn't have that opportunity, which was kind of a bummer in a sense. You know, growing up in Newfoundland, you know, I was so kind of like away from the whole metal thing. You know, metal, I feel like is, is more present in, in higher densely populated areas, you know. And growing up in Newfoundland, like it was a few of us who were into it, you know, and like we never had the opportunity to go to all these big shows. When I moved to Edmonton, I really took advantage of that. Yeah, and you went to as many shows as I possibly could. It was a weird place to grow up being into metal because like it was more folk and country and things like that around. And yeah, and lots of music, but just not heavy metal, you know, where it's such a niche thing. Dude, there's a lot of country music in Canada, like a shocking amount because I guess USA Americans don't think of country music in Canada. Like we don't put the two together, but <laughs> there's a there's a shocking amount. We're about to run out of time. I want to talk about Surreption real quick because we barely talked about it. But that particular style of metal, I think is like the hardest shit to play. <laughs> and I mean, there's no room for error. And also it's hard to make it sound good because of all the stuff that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So what I'm wondering is when you're playing with Surreption, when you guys are working out parts, how do you guys as a collective get it to the level where like this sounds like the way we want it to sound because man, technical death metal does not sound good unless people make it sound good. It doesn't sound good right off the bat, like some styles of music that are arranged to sound good. Like you have to make it sound good. So I'm just wondering what's the method? Yeah, I mean, thank you first. I mean, cause like, I appreciate it. A lot of the stuff that Surreption writes to make it sound good, there's just a lot of, uh, like orchestration behind the scenes in that sense. I mean, like it doesn't happen so much on the instrument itself. Like a lot of the stuff was was written pretty much in Guitar Pro and uh, it evolves from there. You know, we might noodle around a little bit first on the guitar and then uh, writing in, you know, in Guitar Pro after, but like a lot of the stuff starts on a computer and it's always been like that. I mean, I, I only joined the bands. Like I started working with them in October, 2021 and uh, I did their, their last album with them and it evolved from there, went on tour and stuff and officially in the band as of January 1st this year. So like, you know, I haven't been with them for like that long, but they've always done it that way ever since their EP and ever since they started in 2005. And they've always kind of wrote things on a computer. And I think giving that, you know, perspective to the music, you have this kind of external perspective, makes it um, a certain kind of awareness that you don't have when you're playing the instrument and you write something. And I think that gives you the ability to write things in a certain way and make it sound good and be able to orchestrate stuff in a way that all fits together and everything has its its own place in the mix and everything sounds good. Which 
which is really important because I think sometimes like uh, technical death metal can get very, very uh, oversaturated. It's almost like a bit too much to really uh, take in because there's just so much shit going on. And it's like, man, you, you get into one thing and next thing you know, boom, you're hit with another thing. And then you get into one thing, holy shit, another thing, you know, it's, it's <laughs> like just all this stuff, you know, and it's cool, man. If, if you're into that style and, and you like that, you know, constant like change of things, you know, you like you, you got one thing and then boom, you know, there's a, an, another thing you got to get used to that. If you like that, it's great. But I mean, I think those, those types of people are few and far between. There's a very important thing that a lot of technical death metal bands kind of ignore, I think is, you know, songwriting <laughs> and yeah, you know, songwriting like is, is, <laughs> yep. is, is so important to be able to write a good song that has a hook that has something that, you know, people can like listen and basically like, hear something that, you know, makes them want to listen to it again. And something that is like a well-structured song. I think that's uh, something that Surreption has has put a lot of faith into, you know, and they've been big into that since the start. You know, they've always had really strong songwriting and uh, very um, distinct parts in their music where like each thing is like, you got a verse, you know, you've got a chorus, you've got a bridge, you got an interlude and all those different things are extremely useful because it helps yeah, build a digestible, cohesive unit, something that you can listen to that you can enjoy. And it's something I, I think a lot of tech death players, they, they kind of ignore because it's just about like, yeah, this is what I can do. Check this out. <laughs> like and play as fast as possible, do the craziest sequence. It starts to get a little more self-centered in that sense, you know, where people are more or less just showboating what they can do and what they can't do and all that stuff. But whereas Surreption, it's written from like a different perspective. It's written on a computer and it's a group effort. And the drummer has a huge, I mean, he's, he's more or less like the main producer in the band. So Tony, in a lot of cases, like when something happens and he's writing something in the music, like it's not about the guitarist trying to do this and show off, you know, all the stuff he can do. The, the drummer like is listening to everything and hey, does this make sense as a whole? And does it, does it really kind of like uh, serve the greater purpose, you know? Surreption, I think, was very good at that type of thing from the very start, which is why I think their music is so good. Yeah, because, I mean, their riffs are, are badass. They're super heavy. Your riffs. They have, like, just crushing grooves. Yeah, but I think, like, the songwriting is really what sets them apart, you know, from the other tech bands. The best tech bands understand songwriting. Like, if you look at, like, Arkspire, look at Necrophagist, Inferi, it's just like, if you look at the best bands in the style, the thing that they all have in common. It's actually good music and good songs. Uh, it's not just like a bunch of random parts strung together. To me, that's the key differentiator between a tech band being sick. Just kind of assume they're all coming to the table with that. They're all coming to the table with like right. hyperspeed. They're all coming to the table with like some like sick riffs and all that stuff. So with that assumption that everyone's bringing that to the table, I think the thing that makes the great band's great is knowing how to write songs. Hell yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. You guys obviously proved that with death. I mean, like your new single well, thanks. like is badass, man. I mean, you got like all the, you know, the, you get the verse, you get the chorus, you get the, the Baroque section in the middle, you know, it breaks down and you got all like the neoclassical elements. And you know, Jesse added like all those like crazy layers. I watched that video you guys did on YouTube. <laughs> Over my head, man. Yeah, it's insane the amount of um, you know, stuff that he draws from different libraries. Yeah, you know, how many different uh, things that he can you know pick a uh, French horn from here, and you know he's got like you know, the choirs from here, and you know he he knows exactly like where to put each thing. It's it's very well done. Oh, yeah, there's uh, definitely a strong element of good songwriting there, and I think that's one of the reasons why yeah your music is so good. And I think with Surreption, like that's super important as well. You know, that's something that uh, they do well from the start. You know, before I was ever involved with them. It's one of the things I was drawn to about them. Well, thank you. Shout out Jesse Zaretti, dude. He's uh, fucking awesome. But to me, songs are everything because if you don't 
have that, kind of what do you have, right? I love great playing, and it's got to be a vehicle for it to make sense. That doesn't mean that a song has to have vocals or that it has to have chorus or whatever. It's just got to be a great piece of music. Yeah, we're saying, you know, good songwriting or good composition. I feel like people default to thinking that means, like, simple American traditional song structure. It just means you need, like, deliberate composition. Yep. Just, like, how deliberate and intentional does it feel? These days, especially, like, I'm willing to go far out when I listen to stuff. It's just, like, I got to know that, like, it was deliberate and, like, intentional. If you have those two things, like, you often... Not to say everything's going to be for everyone, but like, yeah. Yeah, definitely. 100%. Yeah, I think that's that's extremely important. If I grew up in a place that was like, you know, Edmonton and there's so many more things I could do and yeah, I could do a bit of this, a bit of that and be, yeah, more things to take my attention. But like for me, where I grew up in a place where there was like, yeah, not a whole lot going on, all I really had was guitar. And, you know, it was something I spent so much time doing. So when I listened to music, I kind of battled with this, you know, like listening for good songwriting, but also listening for like things that engaged me as a guitarist, you know, things that like made like, oh, that was a cool arpeggio, you know, oh, that was a cool lick. That was a cool run. Things like that that stuck out to me. And there was a point in time where I'd listen to music just for that one, that one lick or that, that one right. solo. And, you know, it was like, oh, great. You know, I, I got that one solo now onto the next song, you know, then I, I find that you know, the next solo that I like and that type of thing. Like, I think it's, um. It was good because I, I kind of battled with that. But then when I, I got more into the instrument and more into music in general, you know, like I started to embrace more songwriting and uh, I started to try to look beyond just like, uh, yeah, the, the solos and the licks. But that was yeah, part of an evolution of like uh, growing up in a place where there was like almost nothing going on, you know, and moving to a place where there, where there was, you know, and having the opportunity to try different things and see different things and all that good stuff. And um, yeah, I feel like uh, it, it can be difficult to get beyond that as a guitarist, as a, just a nerdy guitarist. Like you, you want to try all kinds of crazy stuff, and you get obsessed with like a particular type of tapping or like a particular type of you know economy picking and stuff like that. And when you do that, like you know, it's hard to see beyond that. Eventually, I think you get uh, to a point where it's like, okay, we got to make music with this, and uh, we got to start sure. writing songs. Yeah, man, so that was definitely a challenge. You know, coming up with uh, yeah with music, you know. I think that the isolation is like the secret for so many scenes too, like the Swedish scene and the Norwegian scene. What else are they going to do besides get good and get sick? <laughs> so I think that's a big part of it. But I think it's a good place to end the episode, Ian. I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure and we should definitely do it again. Hell yeah. Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, man. It was a blast. I'm super stoked to be here with you guys. Yeah, I think it was a great conversation. Yeah, I would love to do it for again. For sure. Great meeting you, dude. You're an animal. Yeah, likewise, man. Next level economy chops, man. Appreciate it, man. You're crazy. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. I try my best. <laughs>